This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you, everyone around the world who listens. I appreciate you. Keep writing in, suggesting notes and also guests and all kinds of things. Appreciate the dialogue. Without you, it would just, it would not be what it is. So, and the Patreons too, and Matthew Wayne Selznick, our technical advisor and expert. Have a nice uh, guest for you today. He wrote a beautiful book called The Way Up, author, and he's also a healthcare executive and a professor that teaches at Columbia. It's an honor to finally have on the family, Mr. Errol Pierre. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Did you grow up in Haiti or are you a first generation person here? I am first generation. So my parents grew up in Haiti. My dad grew up in Gonaive, small, tiny farm town. And my mom grew up in Patronville, but they moved to the U.S. in the early 70s. So I grew up in uh, New York. Have you gone back and spent much time there ever? I actually have, yes. So after the earthquake of 2010... Uh, in Haiti, which was extremely devastating. Uh, I just felt the need to give back to my my dad's homeland. Uh, so that was my first trip back in a humanitarian perspective, uh, volunteering. Uh, and I've been back almost every year since then, up until COVID. So I, I was going every year up until 2020, where obviously no one could travel, but uh, had a, had a long stint going back every year to help out. I have a soft spot for that country because I feel like it's one of the most misunderstood places in the world. Most people have no idea about the history, the rebellion that was successful, having to pay off damages, even though they were the ones who were oppressed. What's your take on that? If I feels like they can't get the boot off their neck because of what happened to them over centuries. I agree. Uh, the hole that was dug back in 1804 when they got their independence uh, is has only gotten deeper over time uh, because of exactly what you mentioned. Uh, one of the only countries that had to essentially buy their own bodies back by paying reparations to their former owners, slave owners. So uh, they're, they're in debt uh, for freedom. Uh, and then I think that if you'd look out 50 years from there, countries were concerned about acknowledging their freedom because they were worried that their other colonized territories would also revolt. So they also became a poster child for what not to do if you're colonized. And I think that punished them for many, many years. Uh, It doesn't help that their geography lends itself to natural disasters consistently, hurricane after hurricane, earthquake after earthquake. That doesn't help. Uh, And, and, you know, if if you don't have trading partners, you're not successful. So you, the ironic thing about Haiti is it's on the same island as Dominican Republic. One could surmise Haiti would be in the same place as their sister country if they weren't sort of punished for becoming free uh, before anyone wanted them to. Well, I feel that's the perfect example. They're literally just a lot, an imaginary line that cuts the two in half, and it's almost like a science study of what would happen if one is tortured and one is left alone? Yeah, exactly. And and ironically, the borderline wasn't chosen by the people that in, in you know inhabit the country. So it's so someone from the outside decided what side is Haiti and what side is Dominican Republic. It's the same people. 
So it's, it's just a travesty to see what, what what's happening there. And, and at the border, I mean, the embassy, U.S. embassy just put out an alert probably three weeks ago stating um, anyone who was dark-skinned in the Dominican Republic was being perceived as a Haitian uh, immigrant. And so being extra questioned, uh, why you're, what are you doing here? So it, it's, it's, it's a travesty. But these are things that happen to them as opposed to they did it to themselves. If I was uh, somehow empowered by extraterrestrial forces and we took over the world and I said, hey, Errol, how can we, what's the hundred year plan to put this thing right? Would you have any thoughts on that? I know that's a big question, but you're very smart. And you're a problem solver. <laughs> it's it's a big question. <clears throat> I think the, the biggest thing is brain drain. So like my parents left in the 70s uh, during uh, baby doc's regime. Uh, they had a couple of uh, despotic leaders that made the best and the brightest leave. So first we have to stem the tide of the brain drain. Um, there's very basic needs. There's very basic needs that the country uh, needs to sort of prop up themselves and have a foundation. This is basic running water, clean water, basic safety. Uh, right now, if you read any of the articles uh, New York Times has done an excellent job looking at it. They're, it's gang infested and the gangs are having their way. Uh, and so there's there's basic protection of safety that's needed. Um, and then trade. You know, for many years, countries did not want to trade with Haiti. They weren't either recognized or they didn't want to participate with them. But they have, they're sitting on a very rich land of, you know, rice and mangoes and so many other produce agriculture like any other Caribbean country. And if they had uh, favorable trade uh, uh, policies, they, they could stand on their own over the long haul. But, but you know, there needs to be one, the brain drain issue. But to get that to happen, you have to make sure there's safety so that people don't leave when they feel that they're educated and they can make a difference. And then lastly, uh, trade policy. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, you know, even U.S., specifically lowered their price of rice, which ended up becoming um, sort of rice dumping. So rather than um, Haitians buying rice from Haitians, it was cheaper to get it from America. And that's an example of the the trade policies that have happened to Haiti that sort of uh, destroyed their economy. Well, I don't think the United States has been a real friend. They propped up uh, the dictators and they exploited the resources and oftentimes they go in under the auspices of helping, but it's more for ex exploitation and power and control. Yes, there's always a uh, ulterior motive, right, to um, any intervention. And I mean, I hate to be super controversial, but I would think there's no way their last president was assassinated without us knowing about it and being okay with it. <laughs> I have, you know, I still want to do more research to understand what really happened, but uh... be careful. Yeah, I don't want to be. <laughs> He went back and we never saw him again, whatever. <laughs> you, you know, you had a turning point earlier in your life. Uh, you were arrested. Do you want to talk about that and how that helps? Because a lot of people do have a mistake and some it takes them down the dark path and spiral and never recover. Others turn it into a turning point in gold. You you were luckily on that side of it. You want to share? Sure, sure. So I had the fortunate opportunity to attend Fordham University which is in the Bronx. Uh, I think people know the Bronx is one of the poorest uh, counties in New York City, one of the poorest 
cities in America. Uh, so there's obviously lots of crime. There's strong correlation between poverty and crime. And uh, Fordham is a pristine, really good Jesuit school. So ironically for me, when I was on campus, I was this educated uh, Black man. But then when I was off campus, like right across the street, I was a uh, susceptible to being the person who's selling drugs to the Fordham students. And so I lived this sort of double life uh, while I was there for four years, where on campus I was going to school, I had friends, everything was great. And then off campus, I was being stopped and frisked by police and being perceived as, you know, a danger. Uh, so that actually culminated to my senior year, where I actually was stopped by police for fitting a description. They, these were plain clothes police, did not know who they were. They came out of a car, this was at night. Um, and they sort of came up to me and grabbed me and started asking me questions. Your, your natural inclination is to push back, to push away, to try to understand what's happening. Uh, so that's what I did. That led me to me being thrown to the ground and uh, 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 cuffs were thrown on me. It ended up you know, in the back of a police car. It happened so quickly, but I still remember it. I still remember the exact street. It's 183rd Street and Arthur Avenue. Like I'll never forget the corner. I'll never forget the 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 pizza store that was across from me. It, it's just such a vivid stain on my brain uh, when I talk about it because it was just sort of uh, shattered my sensibilities of like what was happening because I was totally innocent, not doing anything wrong. Uh, so I end up in the police car and uh, pretty upset about what happened and saying this is can't do this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm educated. I know my rights. And essentially it came down to uh, if I not quiet, um, you know, ba basically bad things can happen. That was the, <laughs> that was the uh, intimation. So ended up in the um, cell and then learned that I was charged with the class E felony for disorderly conduct. So resisting arrest essentially was the charge even though I didn't know why I was being arrested. And it was just such a baffling situation. And I was, you know, probably 21 years old because I was a senior in college, had no idea what to do. Um, I was locked up for a while. They finally let me out. Uh, friends from college came to pick me up and I had to come back for a court date. Um, so so <laughs> first call was to my parents, obviously, to try to figure out what happened. They're like, what did you do? I was like, I, honestly, I didn't do anything. Like, well, why did they stop you? They said they were, I fit a description. They were looking for someone. It's like, well, why didn't you comply? It's like, I didn't even know what, who was grabbing me when, when I was grabbed. And when I was thrown to the floor, I was like trying to get back up. It's just natural reaction. Uh, and in the, in the heat of the moment, you just react. And so, uh, you know, luckily, I, and I'm so fortunate because, you know, being a Fordham student, I had the ability to have character witnesses. I actually had an eyewitness that was there, a Fordham student that saw what happened. So came to the court case, uh, the judge dismissed it. The, but the crazy thing is um, I had uh, basically 10 year probation, 10 years of probation. So if I, if I had any other issue that had to do with law, the law enforcement, then that case would come up on my record. So I had to basically, it was like, uh, individual uh, invisible handcuffs for ten years of you know not doing anything, um, or else the 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 classy felony would pop back up. Um, 
the other thing was that I was um, fortunate to have, you know, the money to pay for an attorney to help me with the case. Um, and then so, you know, just doing some research on 2005 when I when that happened to me and looking at the stats during the, at the time, stop and frisk was, you know, uh, all over the place. This was like the policy for New York City. Um, nine times out of 10, you know, 94 percent of the time people are pleading guilty even though they didn't do anything because they don't have the $5,000 for an attorney that my parents had. So to plead the case out. Uh, and then the other fact that, which is crazy is 70, 80% of the time of the stop and frisk, the people are innocent. There's nothing on them. So it was a crazy story. Uh, what I took away from that definitely was that um, how people perceive me is more powerful than how I perceive myself walking around uh, America. And so from there, I mean, I, I did a dramatic change in terms of it's like I will never, ever fit a description ever again. And that, that shouldn't have been the lesson I learned, but it was a lesson that I took from it. Of I'm not, I'm not going to wear certain clothes. I'm not going to be in certain places. It, this is I just never want to be in that situation again. It's the the, the height of uh, feeling the lowest you've ever been. Um, so um, yeah, it was it was just a insane experience that. Every time I talk about it, I bring me right back to it. God, I can feel it's charged. Was the class felony walking while black? Was that technically? What <laughs> yeah, I mean, I told you, you know, disorderly conduct and resisting arrest, it, it, it just, it, it doesn't make any sense. And, and you know, going through it um, and then finding out in like 94% of the cases, the, these kids, these young minority black and brown kids are pleading guilty. Uh, to a lower charge it's just it's upsetting and it, it just speaks to why we see the stats that we have um in prison because it's sort of set up as a trap you know um so yeah so that that definitely changed my whole opinion about uh how i navigate the world just going through that experience and i i lucked, I, I lucked out you know i was on the the good side of that whole experience you did. I mean, honestly, I mean, you could be dead with 182 bullets like the guy in the doorway or so many others plant a knife on you or a gun or end up in Rikers out there without bail and without even a trial. Like these people out there, five, six, eight years, the one poor kid, they said he stole a backpack. He committed suicide. Others die from mysterious reasons. Uh, it's it's a dark thing. You had luckily a lot of support behind you, but that's scary. The power of the machine, like you got swept up in a tornado. Yeah. Yeah. It is scary. And and to your point, um, I had a lot of people behind me and uh, it just shows the power of mentorship and having loved ones around you. Uh, and so many people aren't as, uh, you know, lucky and fortunate to have that opportunity. One, that's one of the reasons I went into mentoring too. So that like, this has to stop. We have to stop it. And the, one of the only ways to do it is telling these type of stories so people are aware of it. I agree. And I bet you can never truly feel safe in the world just because uh, the real uniform you have, unfortunately, is a darker pigmentation. I have friends who've called me while driving just because there was a police officer behind them just in case something happened. Because really, it might be a life-ending situation, as we know. And these are like corporate executives like yourself, one guy's a West Point grad and uh, we we read about it every day, so we see it on videos. And if we don't see the video, then nothing happens. And even when we see the video, it's rare that there are any consequences. 
Yeah, I can tell you, fast forwarding to now, present day, even if sirens go off, on the, uh, I have butterflies, my, you know, my heart rate goes up, uh, sweaty palms. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't even matter if the, 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 the sirens are for me. It could be for totally someone else, but just the this, this sheer sight of it, it, it triggers that response. Uh, so I agree that, you know, it's, it stays with you. Um, and it's, it's sort of, uh, a reminder of what could happen, you know, and, and it's not up to you because you, it, your life is in someone else's hands. Um, and the, the other ironic thing about this is in your most traumatic moment, society asks you to stay calm and be respectful <laughs> and don't do anything. Uh, it, it's humanly, it's, it's doesn't even, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, but that's that's what's the that's where the bar is as, at least right now in society for you and also they weren't in uniform or identified it could have been four guys in a gang robbing you and you sound like you do have ptsd from it how could you not i mean that's a life and death moment yeah it it, it i know there was a fork of the road uh and i'm so thankful uh that I, where i landed where i landed but it did shine a light on the amount of people, like I am a small statistic. There's a, the amount of people that get trapped in that machine that aren't as lucky, whether they get shot or they just end up in a system with a record. You know, you're, you're, if that was me, my, like I, I just accepted my first job, my first big company, and I was going to start in the summer. Mm -hmm. And this was like, you know, before the school year ended, I, my whole life would have been totally different if I had a record. Uh, and I had to like, you know, fill out an application and say, yes, I have a felony. My whole life would be would be different. Whole life would be different. What would you tell the young men who are listening who look like you and maybe they're 19, 20, maybe they don't have the support. We have quite a diverse audience and they're moving through L.A. or New York, Boston, Philly, Milwaukee, pretty racist, Miami or anywhere. I know rural areas. Any tips on uh, I know it's silly to say, oh, just stay calm, but. God, keep the hands on that wheel and pray to God you live. But you've lived through it. You're smart. You've you're helping people. What would you say, like, if we were in a room right now with a bunch of people saying, thinking, "Hey, any tips to keep us alive here?" Absolutely, and and I, I talk about this in the book and, and the way up. Um, the important thing to do is remember to win the war, and not the battle. And so when those moments happen cop pulls up behind me, hands are on the steering wheel, even if they're disrespectful, whatever they're doing, it does like whatever they're trying to do in that moment, the war is to win the war is to leave with your life, leave with your life. So, so don't worry about your ego. Let them talk down to you. Remember their badge number. Remember their car number. Be patient. Slow down. Be quiet. Ask for, you know, ask for clarity. I remember being told, turn off your car and roll down your window. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second. Uh, and you clarify, because if I turn off my car, I won't be able to turn off, turn down the window. And I'm not trying to be cynical. I just want to follow the directions. So I, if I, I turn off my car and then my window's still up, you're going to think I'm not listening to you. So just like, just slow down and focus on winning the war and not the battle. If you live through the moment, it becomes a testimony to educate someone else. Uh, there's a story in the book about Japaris, who was one of my mentees, and same vein. You know, I, I went back to um, mentor at schools in the Bronx, 
and Japaris was one of my uh, mentees, and I still talk to him to this day. So I was glad we could feature him in the book. Uh, and same same deal, you know. It's like, look, this happened to me. Uh, he eventually was stopped by cops, and similar story. And it's just like you got to slow down, focus on winning the war, not the battle. You don't need to win in that in in terminal moment moment if they try to you know knock your ego or try to make you act out of turn. It's it's not worth it. Yeah, I always say that when I see the video where the guy is like, obviously it's unjust and he's arguing or he's pissed. I'm always screaming, quiet, lay down, hands, just lay down. Don't fight. Don't argue. Win the war. Don't, don't, don't. He has a gun. You don't. And and that's not a natural response. So we're asking people to act unnaturally for their sake of their life. But yes. Wow. What inspired you to create the book? How did it come into being? I love the book, by the way. It's a great idea. And shout out to your co-writer, too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Jim has been great through the process. So the inspiration for the book was um, pandemic happened. And at the same time, we had the murder of George Floyd. And I was stuck at home watching this racial reckoning in America, thinking, wow, you know, the pandemic is disproportionately hurting people of color, they're dying faster than anyone else. Um, This videotape of George Floyd being murdered uh, for that long of a time, you know, brings back the memories of hangings where you would hang someone and watch them die. This was the same type of thing visually watching eight minutes of someone dying um, right in front of your face on on TV. So this, this was sort of a, um, this sparked such a, urge for me to put my thoughts on paper. And um, with quarantining, I actually had the time to sit with my thoughts and, and, and digest it. So really the book, the intent of it was reflecting back on my time from being in college and getting locked up <laughs> and working at a, a warehouse at a beauty supply store to becoming an executive and the road that it took uh, and trying to f- put down on paper, like, well, what were the lessons that I learned along the way? Uh, they they, they got to be helpful for somebody who's going through it. Um, and then I also wanted to back it up by research. So I was also doing my doctorate degree at the time. And so I was using the same methodologies for research in terms of peer review studies and saying, the research dehumanizes people because it's a statistic, you know, 25% of the time XYZ happens, not realizing that that statistic is a person. So I thought if I could match real research on the issues of uh, people in corporate America not getting to the top with my own personal stories, and then I had the opportunity with, with Jim to interview 11 other executives of color from all different walks of life and hear their stories. And they were all similar. And so the book sort of naturally came together in terms of like, I have all these statistics, right? Where, you know, uh, there's like six CEOs of that are Black of a Fortune 500 company in the past five years, even though 13% of the country is Black. And it's not for a lack of education. It's not for a lack of experience. It's not for a lack of raising their hand. So what is the issue? And and talking to other executives of color to answer that same question and looking at research papers to answer that question, that's really what drove the book. And so for me, I, I learned a ton by going through the process. I learned a lot by, by myself. I learned a lot from the executives of color I spoke to. 
and all the research paper that's out there that just says this is a huge issue and we have to solve it. We have to solve it. Are you hopeful that we can do it? I guess the best way is what you're doing, mentorship, talking about it and teaching. Yes, I, I'm actually very hopeful because I think that we're getting to a point where we can't look away anymore. Um, COVID was so big that I don't think people can unsee what they saw. Uh, George Floyd was so explicit, regardless of his past, because people always try to bring up his past, regardless of it. A human being is a human being. It was so explicit that I don't think people can unsee it. And so these are huge problems, and we shouldn't have to wait for these like shocks to the system to make a change. But I think at this point that the, the sounds are loud enough that we can't go backwards. Um, one thing I'm encouraged by, too, is, uh, you know, Martin Luther King talks about the arc of justice. It takes a long time, but it bends uh, towards uh, uh, freedom. And it's going to take a slow road. But my thing is, can we just move forward one inch every day? If at least an inch every day, it's path in the right direction. So I, I do have hope. And the fact, you know, a publisher decided this was a story to pick up is, uh, to me, another opportunity to say, yes, I think we're moving in the right direction. We keep talking about mentors. How important is it to have a mentor or several? For me, it's been life-changing. I've always gravitated towards older, wiser men and women have just been huge for me why reinvent the wheel even my own dad was fantastic for that but just in general and and how important is it and how does one seek out and find mentors i could give my little quick take i found the people that were extremely successful if you were genuine in your interest to learn not look for money or a handout but just to get knowledge so many of them were incredibly generous and wanted to help when we'd go way beyond the call of duty yeah, I agree. I think uh, mentors are huge. I, I can't even understate what it is. And I'll explain. Well, first, let me say from this perspective, I always share with folks where the word mentor came from. So uh, if you read Homer and the Odyssey, Homer's poem, The Odyssey, you have Odysseus who's going out to fight the Trojan War and he's leaving his son Telemachus behind. And he's like, who's going to raise my son when I'm fighting in the Trojan War? The one man that he trusted to raise his son while he was away was a man named Mentor. And so that's where the word comes from. This is the person you trust with your son. And so when you're thinking about how to choose a mentor, it should be in that same type of regard of who would I trust with my son? You know, That's the level of trust and bond and faith that you have in another person. And that's what a mentor is. Uh, the, one of the things I talk about in The Way Up is if that's the relationship, if you're a mentee, you have to respect it as such. Meaning there has to be intentionality. You can't waste your mentor's time. Uh, there has to be a level of respect knowing that this person is going out of their way to help you and they owe you nothing. They're doing it out of charity. And so be very mindful that uh, you're getting free time from someone who's doing potentially something you want to eventually do one day. You look up to them in some regard. Uh, and you want to have milestones. So it's not just a meandering relationship where you kind of just always talk. 
<laughs> right? Because you you know you use up their time. So out of respect, you're like, well, I really want to get this new job. And if you get the job, you say, you know what? The time we spent over the past couple of months was amazing. I achieved my objective. Uh, I'm I would love to continue talking, but I want to be respectful of your time and your relationship. Those are great milestone points to have with your mentor, just to make sure you nurture the relationship. I think a lot of relationships, mentor-mentee relationships, tend to die in the vine because the mentee doesn't take the initiative to really curate the relationship and get the most out of it. Uh, so I talk about that in the book as 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 uh, for people of color and and mindfully, like for example, my parents were immigrants, so their lessons for the world of work were very different than the lessons I got from my corporate mentors. So they taught me hard work. They taught me perseverance. But as immigrants, they also taught me, keep your head down, stay quiet, don't make noise, just be the model minority, don't make trouble. Uh, those lessons don't work <laughs> in corporate America. And so I needed to have mentors like a Jeff Grelling, uh, who, you know, great guy, and they took me under his wing and said, oh, well, in corporate America, this is how it works. And so I, I just expressed the fact that um, sometimes it's harder for people of color to build those relationships with folks that know corporate America really well to teach them how to navigate through it because, one, they don't look like the other person. Two, there's probably a cultural gap. And so it's so much easier to stay in your safe space and just hang around people you know. It's much harder to put out the olive branch and try to get a mentor that doesn't look like you, but has the expertise you need. So I'm just very mindful to let folks, you know, let them know, like, yes, you need mentors, but you have to be very judicious about who you choose and then also be mindful of the time that you take from them. Mm, great tips. And also I say always pay, offer to pay, and then try to keep it tight. Like you say, no meandering. Like I'm always the one who says, you know, oh, wow, we had lunch. It's an hour. Hey, I'm going to let you go. I know you're real busy and I don't want to take too much time. And if they insist, no, 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 a few more minutes, then okay. But always leave it where it's more. You don't want them to to, to run you off. Even if you have 80 more questions, I think they, and these these people know they're smart. They're, they're They know how valuable. And if the time is and if they sense that plus 99.999 percent of everybody has been helped by someone so often they're looking to pay it back because when they were your age or younger people help them and so they're they know how it works that kind of successful person the kind that doesn't want to help anybody you wouldn't want to hang out with that kind of person either and so there's that balance but keep it tight keep it moving and uh, always send a thank you note or uh, if they really do something great, like introduce you to something, report back on that meeting. If if you end up getting a job or a deal out of it, I used to always send gifts, wine, food, gift certificates with a note. And even though they're rich, they didn't need anything, they always appreciated it. I don't care what anyone says, oh, you shouldn't have. And then they would say, oh, the wine was great or or something. Tickets to the, the back of Nashville Titans game, great seats, even if they gave them away. But it was like you went out, spent money, thought about it, you know, because they did something in their life that made a big impact on you. I couldn't have built my business without the help of many people. You can work hard like crazy, but if you have mentors, it saves years and a lot of trouble. And it's more fun to go with a group. Absolutely. I agree hundred percent. So it's interesting. I'll tell you um, in the book, we talk about the acronym called time 
T-I-M-E, and that's the lesson for mentees, that being a mentee takes time. So the T is trust. You have to have trust with your mentor. I is intentionality, like you, as you're saying. You have to be very intentional about the relationship. Send the thank you note. Make sure you're uh, being intentional about the time you have. Have uh, an agenda with them so that they know what they're talking about with you before you speak with them. So absolutely. M is measurable. You should be able to measure the impact. And then the last is E. After a certain amount of time, evaluate the relationship and see if it's done its its course or done its justice. If not, it's perfectly okay to, you know, uh, disband, right? It's not a knock on neither person, but sometimes there's matches that aren't there. And so, uh, yeah, I agree with all your points. What drew you to get involved in the corporate world? It's a great question. So, you know, um, my mom sent me to an enrichment program at Columbia University. And I would take, this was when I was uh, still, still in high school. And I'd take the one train to get to 116th Street. I think it's the one train. Um, I'd take the train to get to 116th Street. And I'd see these men, these gentlemen, in just really nice suits with really nice shoes that were shiny. And they were rustling a newspaper and they're rustling it and folding it and reading it. And they just look so important. They had a briefcase. They were sitting down, they're rustling the paper. I didn't know what they did, but I wanted to do that. <laughs> and so that's when I knew I was going to be in business. Uh, so I had no idea what they what they were. And then obviously when I ended up in Fordham undergrad, I ended up doing uh, business administration with a focus on finance. And my goal was going to be a banker because the people I saw on the train were these bankers in nice suits. Uh, so that's when I sort of, I knew when I was a kid that I wanted to at least dress that way and have that aura. They just look very important. And then in college, pursued business, uh, but ended up in health insurance, um, which is a totally other interesting story, but uh, still got to corporate America. I know. And did, well, when you were in there, did you run into glass ceilings and barriers? Because, you know, for the obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. So the the way I actually got my first door into corporate America was uh, very interesting. I, I worked at a beauty supply store, stocking shelves. And uh, I guess this woman had seen me work there a bunch of times because I, I worked there for you know, almost six, seven years uh, through high school and also through college, but just to make money on the side. And eventually she, one day she came up to me and said, I think this is more than what you do like full-time. Like what else do you do? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm in college uh, full-time. This is my part-time job. She's like, do you have a resume? Absolutely. Sent it to her. Uh, long behold, this woman who, you know, discovered me in a beauty supply store <laughs> stocking shelves was the chief operating officer of one of the largest health insurance companies in New York. So that's how I got my start. I was an intern uh, working in her uh, organization, uh, and she saw something in me. I, I was either stocking shelves very diligently, <laughs> but she saw something about you know the way I handled myself, my maturity level as a young kid. Uh, in the store, and she saw me on numerous occasions. So I always tell people, you know, you never know when you're interviewing for your job. You never know. You just always have to be on. Um, and then once I got in 
to uh, corporate America. I was uh, lucky to have mentors, sponsors. So about every three years, I was getting promoted within the company and moving up. And I got to a point where I reached a director level role. And the conversation was, Errol, if you want to be a vice president, you know, you're doing great. Everything is great. You just got to hang out for five years and you'll be there. And for me, I was just like five years, like I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. There's no issues. So what is it? It's like, they just like, oh, you just need to wait your turn. You just need time. You just, you know, you're doing great, but you're young. Five years is fine. And I had this level of impatience. Uh, so I, at that moment, I felt like this, that was a glass ceiling. Just, I was like, tell me the reason why I'm not able to move up. It, it just can't be duration. It, if there's skill sets I need to learn, great. Let me learn them. Um, but just this weird, you know, number, nebulous number of just sit, you know, sit put for uh, five years didn't make sense. Uh, so that was my first time leaving an organization to jump to another opportunity where I had um, more experience, uh, more breadth of responsibilities. And so, you know, I would say, like, if a company doesn't see your worth, there's always going to be someone else that does. You just have to have, you know, the the confidence in yourself that you can do it. And so I made the leap. Um, so there's always glass ceilings. Uh, people are always going to assume what you can do. You really need to know in your heart of hearts what you can do. Uh, I think also what I've gathered from the research and even the interviews and my own personal thoughts is uh, what tends to happen with, this happens with people of color, this happens with women, they sort of discount their self-worth. And so I'm, sh I'm sure you heard, you know, the, the cliche uh, examples where there's a job description and you can do 80% of what the job description says, but you spend 100% of your time on the 20% you can't do. So you walk into the job interview and you say, well, I never really did this. And that's how you start the conversation. Ooh. No. As opposed to we have your your peers that you're competing against can do 50% of the job and they only talk about that 50%. And then if they bring up the other 50% that they can't do, they redirect <laughs> to the 50%. And, and that comes down with confidence. That comes down with, you know, the mentorship that you have that explains how corporate America works. And it just, it's sort of like people need to know the toolboxes uh, and the tools that they have for themselves to navigate because it, it's like um, you need a GPS, you know, navigating um, my world with my Caribbean parents is totally different than corporate world. And so I needed a GPS to figure out how to do it. And there's, there's glass ceilings, but there's ways to overcome them. We're talking about healthcare. Shouldn't every human being have access to healthcare? Almost every country in the world has that universal healthcare. We don't. And our insurance Byzantine crazy system makes it harder and harder. Even if you're well off, it's hard. If you have, I mean, it's tied to our jobs. I feel like we are way behind and it's so exploitive that this thing, people, so many die or suffer for no reason. And then you got CEOs making $240 million a year. It's just insane. What are your thoughts on universal health care that would bring us in alignment with all of Europe and other top countries? I can say that without a shadow of a doubt, uh, we would be a better off country if everyone had access to healthcare, high quality, 
low cost, dignified healthcare. Um, <clears throat> the, the example I always use is the Constitution. Think about the fervor that exists in this country on gun rights. Uh, even after the mass shootings that we've seen, we still find it impossible to pass gun reform at, to any capacity. And the reason being is because it's written in the Constitution. Now, you can debate militia and all the terminology, but for the most part, it's there. And so it's, a, it's, it's basically so ingrained in our culture, it's so hard to change, right? Um, what's not in our Constitution is the health and wellness of American citizens. It's not written in the Constitution. We have the pursuit of uh, life, liberty, and happiness, and we have the Bill of Rights, and but the Constitution does not guarantee health care. If you look at uh, all the other developed nations, they have it in their Constitution. Even lower-income nations like Thailand has health care and the right to health care in the Constitution. So the, the fix for this country is one constitutional amendment because then everything would change. We would have the same fervor we have for guns we would have for taking care of people. It's a, I think you have to start with the Constitution. And the other developed nations are, are the perfect example. Once it's in the Constitution, now you're talking about budgeting for taking care of the destitute, where today it's for the private sector to figure out if they want to take care of the destitute. Um, and if they don't, then charities pop up and, and pick up the pieces. That's the, that's the first piece. The second piece is, and I talk about this in both the Columbia class and the NYU class with health economics, is we spend two and a half times more on healthcare than any other developed nation in the in, on the planet. So we spend more and our outcomes are worse. And some of our outcomes meet the level of third world countries. If you talk about maternity mortality, uh, you know, I'll give you an example of a statistic. In Brooklyn, um, there's probably between 60 and 70 black mothers out of 100,000 that will die when they give birth compared to the national average of 15. So exponentially higher. And you ask, why is that happening in Brooklyn? And it comes down to, we have the money, but the money doesn't go through the system equitably and efficiently. So we're spending 2.5 times more than every other nation, but one person is getting you know, the best brain surgery from the best surgeon with the best care in a private room. And then there's a million people that can't get a COVID test. Uh, so it's the distribution of the money that's just so inefficient in our system because we're basically based on a um, fee-for-service market where I only get paid when I see people. So we're, we're basically uh, conditioned to have this really uh, ineffective, inefficient method of treating folks. You know, it's better for me to, um, I'm incentivized from a financial perspective to not do any of the preventive care visits because I'll get paid way more when the person comes in for an emergency room visit. But that that's basically the economic framework that we built for healthcare, which is leading to the horrible outcomes we have. What an incredible take. But Errol, isn't the uh, corporate capitalistic 
corporate capitalism system we have, it's fundamentally anti-life and anti-humanity because it puts profits over people. You can't ask it to be pro-life when it actually is anti-life and it's destroying the planet, it's destroying humanity. And I would be happy to argue with any economist or philosopher the point because every statistic backs up what I just said. Yeah, yeah. And think of it this way, right? France has a capitalistic economy. Germany has a capitalistic economy. Japan has a capitalistic economy. Yet they have universal health care and their, their legislators budget a percentage of GDP or a percentage of the budget of the government the government's budget to healthcare, and no one's uninsured, and everyone gets the services they need, and there's provisions, and some people get told no when they can't have this extra special surgery, and some people are told yes, and they make it work. So th there is systems with capitalism that still produce health. Uh, you know, Great Britain, the the national health uh, uh, model. They're doing it. There's rationing, but everyone rations. You know, it's it's interesting. The debate always happens when like we can't ration care. It's like when you balance your checkbook, you're rationing your dollars. Everyone rations care, uh, and you just have to put the money where it's more effective. So I do think yes, it, it, it's capitalism. Um, from get to a point where you can promote uh, things that are going to hurt people in the in the long run. There's no way to stop it. Absolutely, that's why you need government intervention. But there are examples of capitalistic countries that still produce really high quality healthcare. Um, so there's a, there is a way to do it. There's absolutely a way to do it. Well, you really want a social democracy, a mix of the two and like Denmark, Sweden, Norway, these countries have higher standards of living, better healthcare, better education. By the way, that's free education because they're smart enough to go a well-educated populace is going to grow our economy. It's going to decrease crime. We're going to be more innovative. All of it makes sense. We're just too greedy. Yeah, there's the efficient producer hypothesis. This is like my, you're in my health economics class now. Um, the, there's direct correlation between education and health. The more educated someone is, the healthier they are. So 100%. So investments in those type of things definitely lead to better health outcomes. The the point you bring up about the Norways, the Denmarks, the Swedens that they get right is the amount of money they put in social services. So this is an interesting stat. 20% um, of the reason why someone gets sick has has to do with their ability to get to a doctor. 80% of the reason why someone has a poor health outcome has nothing to do with seeing a physician. It has to do with things like income, education, access to food, the crime in their neighborhood, all these other outside factors that impact their ability to be healthy. And so uh, countries that you know invest in social services like education, like childcare, like you know having uh, parks for people to play, like food policy so that there's not high fructose corn syrup in all the drinks leads to lower health because you're investing in the social services. So uh, that's starting to happen in the United States, this recognition that we have to also fund housing, right? So that when you um, discharge a patient that has uh, pneumonia, you don't send them back to an apartment that doesn't have heat in the winter, <laughs> you know? So we're starting to connect those dots now, which is which is good news in America. Well, I know I have to let you go back. I'd love to have you on again. There's so much more I could ask you. 
if we put you back in the time machine and you were uh, talking to your younger self right now, and they, those younger selves are all over the world in many countries, uh, what message would you have for these men and women who aspire to be in a better position down the road than they are today? Yeah, the, the one takeaway I would have, uh, my favorite line in the book, The Way Up, is have the courage to make one million mistakes and the wisdom not to make the same mistake one million times. And so I wish I'd made a little bit more mistakes when I was younger. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.